What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is editor, educator, activist, author, mom, and Berkeley's poet laureate, Aya DeLeon. Aya, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's such a joy to be here. Aya, I want to start with a little bit about you, uh, specifically where and how you grew up. What was your family like? Oh, wow. Well, I am a Berkeley kid. My family um, moved up to Berkeley from L.A., uh, essentially fleeing Southern California racism. (laughs) But that may be a different story. Um, And, you know, we moved to Berkeley because it was the first... um, school district to voluntarily desegregate. Um, And uh, we thought that it would be a good home for us as a kind of multiracial Caribbean family. Um, And I moved up here with my mom, who raised me and came up through the Berkeley schools in the 70s and 80s. And it was a really strong time of activism, you know, um, here in the Bay, and I grew up in kind of progressive community organizing circles with my mom. Caribbean, where from? Uh, my mom's people are from Puerto Rico, and my dad got uh, roots in the U.S. South in South Carolina and Caribbean roots in St. Kitts and Nevis. Say more, Aya, about growing up in the 70s and 80s. We know in the 70s, the Black Panther Party was very active in the Bay. How did that impact your view of the world? I think, you know, there was the sense of the Black Panther Party, and there was also the farm workers organizing and striking. Um, the, there had been so many mass movements that sort of the, the state was offering uh, certain kinds of incentives um, giving people jobs, uh, the CETA program. And I don't even remember what that stood for, but there were all these CETA jobs um, doing different kinds of arts and community work. And my mom had a CETA job and there was an organization in kind of central West Berkeley called Common Arts. And it was this progressive arts organization with all these folks of color. I remember uh, the family Natoto uh, drumming and doing huh. poetry a la The Last Poets. It was just a time with a lot of cultural organizing, political organizing, and activism. And, you know, it was really normalized uh, that, you know, wherever you were, whatever you were doing, that you would be part of struggle, part of movements, part of making the world better. Um, And I remember a lot of that when I was little. So having grown up in that kind of environment, what are your reflections now? with massive gentrification, with the push out of black folks, with the criminalization of our young people, so much has changed. Yes. One thing that I will say that has definitely been my experience um, as a mom, um, I came up through Berkeley Public Schools, period, end of story, there was no question. Um, But with my own kid who, you know, as a black kid, um, we have mostly gone to school in Oakland, in East Oakland, you know, and so when I was a kid, uh, folks from Oakland, Richmond, El Cerrito were often trying to get their kids into Berkeley schools. Um, 
yeah, when I was a kid, folks were trying to get kids from neighboring cities into Berkeley schools, but I found myself doing a reverse commute uh, because when I came up, um, Berkeley was very mixed, you know, black, white, and um, Chicano or Chicanex. And uh, that has really changed. When my kid came of age for um, public schools, there were, uh, rumor had it that there were some of the classrooms in kindergarten classrooms in Berkeley that had no black children uh, because so many black folks had been pushed out and new families were not coming in um, because it's not been affordable. So, you know, that has prompted me to send my kid mostly to school in Oakland, a mix of, you know, public school, private school, charter school, you know, indie school, homeschool. Um, it's just a different world. And I experienced that very much as a Berkeley resident, but especially as a parent, um, because so few new black families are coming in with young kids. Uh, two follow-up questions to that. Um, when I first came to Oakland, I came doing education reform. And I remember this report um, about Berkeley schools that they had the appearance, right, of being these progressive, integrated places where all kids could thrive. But when you looked at the test data, the black kids were languishing just like black kids languish everywhere. That's right. And I think, um, you know, Berkeley is a mass of paradoxes and contradictions and complexities. And, you know, I think the move to voluntarily desegregate uh, reflects an impulse towards justice and equity. Um, but actually living out that impulse towards justice and equity requires more than a single decision or a gesture. Um, and that's right. And I even remember when I was at Berkeley High School, um, which has, uh, you know, a powerful African-American studies department. I remember in one of my classes being asked, you know, because I was a very, you know, I was a really strong student, being asked to look at other student work, and it was an all-Black class. And I remember at the time really seeing that a lot of the students were not reading and writing at grade level at all, you know. So the, the and these were, you know, of course, smart, young Black folks. And so the school system had clearly failed them around uh, basic skill development. Um, and, you know, and I believe that we continue to see that. Um, you know, folks talked about it as the achievement gap, but, you know, uh, other folks have talked about it as an opportunity gap right. um, or a resourcing gap. That's right. And I guess the other thing I want to touch on, and I do want to get to your art, uh, but we've gone down. Absolutely, we've, we've, let's talk about. We've all gone down this road that I'm I'm really passionate about. Mm -hmm. I heard you mention all of the different types of school that you placed your child or children in: um, private, mm -hmm. charter, community, public, etc. So often, right? Parents are the ones that get demonized for the charter school problem. Um, Oakland mm -hmm. has more charter schools per capita than any other city in the nation. And yet, right, our job is to ensure our kids have the best education possible. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which and what prompted you to make the decisions that you made? Yeah. So the first thing that I'll say is, you know, I just want to be transparent about it because um, these decisions are really agonizing. Um, and I think that 
public schools are critical, critical, critical um, in a functioning democracy. You know, they're critical sites of equity and support. And, um, you know, it was a real crisis. Like I had always expected that I would just put my kids in Berkeley public schools and that's what we would do, you know, but when suddenly my kid faced the prospect of being the only black student in a classroom, that was completely unacceptable. And then once that wasn't going to be the plan, then sort of all bets were off. And I started out in, um, at a school called ICC in East Oakland, which was an Afrocentric Spanish immersion, uh, progressive uh, inquiry-based curriculum, uh, like micro school out of someone's house uh, in the Fruitvale area. And that school was amazing, you know, and it was really diverse, mostly working class families, which would explain why, you know, a year and a half into that project, the school folded because it wasn't uh, financially viable, right? Yeah. Uh, public schools are funded by the state and private schools are funded by, you know, families that have resources. And so we had a school that was neither and um, it did not survive. Um, although it had, it was wonderful while it lasted. And then from there, I knew a bunch of folks who were going to uh, the charter school Lodestar, which was a black and brown school, really progressive curriculum. And even though we were a Berkeley family, since they were in startup mode, we were able to get in. So we went there and, you know, again, that was really lovely for another year and a half. And then they moved, you know, so I think um, my experience as a parent has been that, you know, my parenting in the school system is about disruption, right? There's all this economic disruption, there's um, and then, you know, we went to a public, we did go to a public school in Berkeley. I found the public school that had the most black children <laughs> and had a black principal. And we went there, you know, and we went there for um, two and a half years and would have just gone straight through. But then there was a pandemic, right? So there's all this disruption um, for our young people and in the process of schooling. Um, and so as a parent coming out of different generations of leadership, my mom was an activist and she was also the first Latina on the Board of Education in Berkeley in the 70s. You know, so my family is multi-generationally committed to public school. And yet, um, I also have thought about uh, wanting to raise a leader, you know, and in order, I think, to raise young people as leaders, they have to have a sense of empowerment. And I could not imagine how my Black kid was going to feel empowered in, you know, in a kindergarten class with, you know, nobody who was reflecting their um, racial and cultural background. So that has been sort of the balance for me is trying to find environments where I think that my young person's power will be supported. And, you know, we've moved around a bunch trying to find that and um, pursuing that. I so empathize with all of that as a single mother that, you know, yes. raising a black girl that I wanted to be empowered mm -hmm. and so many transitions and shifts we made. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say, I do want to say just one other thing, which is it has also been really important to me um, as someone who was willing to do some, you know, private schooling, it has been really important to me not to do all private schooling, 
because I think, um, you know, like currently uh, my kid is at an independent school that's mostly black. And it's been really, really important to me to be strategic about using private school as a strategy for empowerment, because I think that there also is a way that, you know, private schools insulate uh, young people from like the real problems of poor and working class people. Um, And I think that it's damaging to a young person to grow up too insulated. And so it's been real important to me to move back and forth between schools that are more working class, more insulated, you know, and, and frankly, I came to the conclusion at one point that, you know, when my kid was in a working class school that had a lot of hood problems, you know, there were frustration with some of the problems, but we knew what the problems were. Nobody was confused. Whereas I saw that there were these much whiter schools that young people can go to where they're really insulated and having this lovely experience. And yet when there are problems, kids of color really internalize that they are the problem. They can't necessarily see the racism and the classism operating in the same way that you can see the hood problems when you're in a hood school. And I really wanted to make sure that there was a mix of things so that my kid could have the critical thinking skills to to decode what they were looking at in terms of race, class, and gender. Oh, you speak into my soul. I got kicked out of the public (laughs) school system uh, in seventh grade. And so the Mm. only option, well, it was private, private school uh, for one year. And Mm -hmm. then it was Catholic school Ah, Mm -hmm. for four years. And we were poor, you know, poor working class. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in school. I grew up in in Las Vegas. I was in school with children Mm -hmm. whose parents owned casinos. Um, And the damage that that did to me. The damage. uh, That's right was so real. And I see that in my teaching. I see, and you know that, the, and I, I figured that out by, you know, I teach at UC Berkeley. I've been there at this point, 17 or 18 years. And every year I see young people come in who have had these quote unquote, good educations, people who call it good educations. And the skills that they've learned have been useful. And the price tag has been this deep level of internalized racism or internalized racism and classism that they're, that they're figuring out how to unlearn in college. And, um, it, and, and the to- that particular toxicity is something that I think families of color, especially immigrant families of color, do not know how to be on guard for and don't understand. Um, so this was part of my learning. <laughs> your kid is lucky to have you. All right, uh, let's talk about your art because that's what we're supposed to be talking about. When did you discover writing and what new worlds did it open up for you? I think um, the earliest the earliest poetry memory that I have is being somewhere between like nine and 12 and having been exposed to like a little snippet of Intozaki Shange's for colored girls and writing this poem in that voice, you know, and I'm from the North Berkeley flatlands, right? So I'm not in Berkeley from a neighborhood where, you know, there was a lot of black vernacular, but there was something that I really seized on in this, um, in whatever snippet I heard and the voice and just something around black womanhood that I wanted to be able to emulate and be part of. And I remember that. And, you know, over the years, I wrote a lot of short fiction. 
Um, and then coming into my 20s, I could tell that I wanted to be a novelist, but I was both extroverted and impatient. I had trouble sitting still uh-huh. and I could not, you know, sit in a chair long enough to write a novel. I just, I couldn't, I didn't have <laughs> the internal stillness. I couldn't do it. Um, I'm a playwright. So, I get yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know. Folks be knowing. And so I, you know, and then at the time there was a, you know, there was a slam poetry scene and, you know, people were doing these three minute pieces and, you know, then you could have this back and forth with an audience. So it was really like my FOMO and my uh, inability to sit still that, that brought me to poetry. And so for, you know, for a good decade plus, I had a life in poetry because I, I ha- because my maturity at the time allowed me to work with a short form. But in that, you know, 10 to 15 years, as I did mature in other ways, I finally had the stamina to sit and complete a novel. Um, and so in 2016, I finished my first novel and, um, uh, you know, my most recent novel was published in 2023. And in that period of time, I published 10 books. It was like they were all brewing inside of me, wow. waiting for me to be ready to write them. Right. And I still do write poetry. And when the poet laureate, um, application came along. I was really excited because I miss poetry. I teach poetry some, but as a practitioner, I really hadn't been practicing. So it's been a joy to get back to it. You have been given acclaim for your work in hip hop theater. What is hip hop theater for my listeners? And what has your work in that realm looked like? Um, hip hop theater is kind of, um, well, first of all, people often talk about the the different elements of hip hop being emceeing or rhyming, DJing, b-boy, b-girl dancing, and graffiti art. But really, there's a there's a very expanded um, set of hip hop arts, including fashion, journalism, hip hop fiction. You know, there are many, many, and and one is hip hop theater, and this is scripted theater that takes place on a stage of some sort um, that has to do with hip hop, is deeply influenced by hip hop aesthetics, has rhyming, DJing, you know, um, that kind of dance, um, graffiti visuals. And so, you know, it's about concentric circles. Some shows like the one that I, um, it's actually the 20th anniversary, uh, in 2004, some shows like mine that are literally about hip hop, have hip hop in the title, are about, you know, thinking about hip hop, talking about hip hop, critiquing hip hop, um, are like right in the center of it. And then other ones that maybe include hip hop music and aesthetics are less, you know, centrally hip hop theater and might be just considered theater. Um, but I had a show uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago called Thieves in the Temple, The Reclaiming of Hip Hop. And it was talking about uh, misogyny and uh, commercialization of hip hop and um, pushing back against um, what I recall, you know, coming up in the 80s and the golden era where hip hop was uh, about social justice. Imperfect, but there was a lot, lot of social justice messaging, black power, black pride messaging, and pushing back against um, the kind of hip hop that was that was increasingly uh, becoming the norm as capitalism 
got hold of hip hop and as misogyny moves from sort of the polite sexism of the late 80s into the intense and vicious misogyny of the 90s and beyond. You also co-founded and blogged the Daily Dose Feminist Voices for the Green New Deal. Talk to us about that. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, my background um, is Puerto Rican, West Indian, and African American. And, um, you know, living on the West Coast, I'm very far flung in the Puerto Rican diaspora. And I've been, you know, concerned about and involved in organizing around environment for many, many years. In the 80s, I was involved in the anti-nuclear movement um, and, you know, have been concerned about the climate and the climate crisis for a while. But when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, that was my wake-up call. Um, not only that climate was really, un was, was an important issue to be on the table, it really sort of shifted climate and the need to address the climate crisis to be a sort of an organizing political principle in my life, because in order to solve climate, we kind of have to solve a lot of other issues, racism, the economic organization of um, the planet, um, pushing back on globalism and uh, on globalization and um, just all of the economic organizing of our planet that's so exploitative and extractive and um, dependent upon fossil fuels. So I shifted into writing climate novels. Um, I had written a number of them and then I began focusing on climate and I wanted to do more and I wanted to do with more with other authors. So a number of us came together and um, we had a blog in 2020 and it was powerful and we were just writing in all different genres, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, sort of um, we had some visual stuff, some audio stuff. We really just wanted to have positive, optimistic um, stories that were about fighting, you know, and that has continued to be a passion of mine in my work, figuring out how to write more and more into a narrative of the solution to the climate crisis being the people mobilizing at a massive level to push back against these politicians and corporations that insist on driving us to the brink of disaster. This is in no one's interest. Even the people for whom it's in their short-term financial interest, it is not in their long-term interest. It's in no one's interest. It's only greed and addiction to greed uh, that drives this. And so that is sort of my desire and vision, and you know, it's many other people's desire and vision as well, that we wanna build that movement to push back and build power and, um, shift things at a deep, deep level at scale. I, uh, I have so many directions I want to go with you and I can feel <laughs> my producer going tick, tick, tick on the clock. We have reached uh, the end of our time, but I would love for you to spit a piece for my listeners, please. Yes, um, I would love to. So um, when I was, uh, named Poet Laureate, they invited me to read a piece. And there was a thought I had been chewing on for a long time that I wanted to speak on. Um, and this brings um, a number of pieces together in Berkeley and in the world. This is a spoken word piece called Real Estate, and it has song lyrics by Diva Mahal and Stevie Wonder. 
I will stand for you. Will you stand for me? Everybody deserves to be free. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? In the 1960s, Berkeley has a racial dividing line, MLK. But at the time, it's not called Martin Luther King Jr. Way. No, it's Grove Street. In the 1960s, Black people can walk on Shattuck and we can shop on Shattuck. But through the 60s, realtors and lenders keep Black homeowners from buying east of Grove Street or in most of North Berkeley. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? In the 1960s, Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART, proposes to build a subway. An elevated track will run along Grove Street from North Oakland and all across Berkeley. In 1968, Mabel Mama Howard, a community organizer in South Berkeley, sues BART. She argues that an above-ground track will permanently reinforce racial division in Berkeley. She wins her lawsuit, and that's why BART goes underground at Alcatraz. Everybody! deserves to be free. In the 1960s, my family comes to the Bay Area fleeing racism in the South, Southern California, that is. In Los Angeles, my Black father and white-looking Latina mother are shot at and harassed by police. Even after my father leaves, white men on the street scream the N-word at my mother and me. Where'd you get that baby, one white man demands. In the zoo, we flee north to Berkeley. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? By the 1980s, my family has put down roots in Berkeley, and I am that lefty kid. Vigils with anti-nuclear signs at Oxford and Addison, marching in San Francisco against war for racial justice, for LGBT and women's rights. In the 1980s, I hear someone say, Palestine, for the first time. Radical Jews opposing the occupation in the Jewish social justice tradition say, Palestine. Heaven help the boy who won't reach 21. Heaven help the man who gave that boy a gun. Heaven help the olives when the bombs begin to fall. Heaven help us all. In the 1980s, I get my first above-the-table job at Berkeley Day Camp. The government takes money out of my check, and I go from being a settler to being a colonizer because some of the wages I make leading Berkeley kids to hike in Tilden, swim in Lake Anza, and fish at the Berkeley Marina go to buy weapons that will kill children in Palestine. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? When I leave Berkeley in the 80s for college, I study history. I learned that the state of Israel was created as a Jewish homeland by white world leaders who didn't want Jewish refugees. Jewish immigration to Israel-Palestine expanded significantly during and after Nazism. The U.S. positions itself as Israel's friend, but in reality, Israel is doing our imperialist dirty work in the Middle East, supporting our empire, our military strategy, enabling our access to natural resources. In Berkeley, in Berkeley BART goes underground through the center of the city and doesn't come up till Westbury. Berkeley has no dividing line in Palestine. Israel builds a military wall 440 miles long, fortified with weapons, checkpoints, settlements, and occupation troops. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? 
the state of Israel is textbook British colonial strategy. They don't send English people to do the bulk of colonial enforcement. They send Indian, Chinese, Arab people as middle agents to maintain their interests. And when the natives get restless, the middle agents can absorb the backlash and can be trained to see the natives as their enemy. Israeli leaders have become a new type of middle agent, not quite white. Jews are ethnic enough to be targets of rising white nationalism, but right-wing Israeli leaders are white enough to implement extremist racist policies on their home turf. How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? And as a black woman, I will stand with all the Jewish peace activists who believe Jews deserve a place to live in safety and have been shouting for decades that this occupation is not the way, this war is not the way, genocide is not the way. Heaven help us all, heaven help us all. Palestinian writer Susan Abu Khawa says, they built over the graves of our ancestors, but we know and only we can tell her native stories, sing her native songs and dance for her a promise from her children determined to make their way back to revive her desiccated rivers that they might again roar with life as they did when our family was whole on her banks. Right now, white Christian nationalism is rising and hate crimes against Jews and Muslims are rising in the US and Europe, right along with crimes, hate crimes against people of color, including Jews of color. And at the very moment, BIPOC folks need white Jews to stand with us against white Christian nationalism and against colonial regimes everywhere. This war in Israel-Palestine is confusing and dividing us. How do we move from one place to another? I will stand for you. Will you stand for me? Syrian-American poet Mojakov asks, living in the empire itself during a genocide, what do we do? Violence can never bring real liberation. How shooting up a rave cannot bring liberation. Taking hostages cannot liberate. How neither can genocide bring peace. Neither can apartheid bring peace during genocide. We dissent. Nonviolently, we dissent. During a massacre, we dissent. My great-grandfather fled South Carolina to escape lynching. My mother and I fled Los Angeles to escape racism. Where can the people of Gaza escape to? How do we move from one place to another? Where are we allowed to live? Are we allowed to live? Allowed to live? Heaven help the people with their backs against the wall. We dissent. We dissent. We demand a permanent ceasefire now. No more prisoners of war and the seas of Gaza and the occupation. Both peoples deserve safety, freedom, and equality, not for one at expense of the other. No dehumanizing of anyone. Heaven help us all. Here on Olone land, I am a settler. In Palestine, my U.S. tax dollars make me a colonizer. We are funding this occupation. We can stop this occupation. In the 1960s, Mabel Mama Howard teaches South Berkeley to push back against dividing lines, take down border walls. We fight for everyone to remove to move freely, for all people to be allowed to live. These are our bombs, these are our taxes. We dissent, call your representatives in Congress, take to the streets, march, vote, organize. This is our fight, this is everyone's fight. I will stand for you, will you stand for me? Everybody deserves to be free, everybody 
deserve to be free. Thank you. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is editor, educator, activist, author, mom, and Berkeley's poet laureate, Aya DeLeon. Aya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond a pleasure. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Mm -hmm.